It's Luke chapter 4. In the beginning of chapter 4, we saw the temptations that Christ endured. Here, we're going to see pretty much the beginning of his Galilean ministry. But what, if anything, happened in between those two times? Well, if you read the Gospels concurrently, we find that Jesus went back and forth between Judea and Galilee, and he also passed through Samaria. I just want to touch on some of the important or some of the interesting points out of these scriptures that John uh, fills in in between that period. John chapter 2, 1 through 11, you don't have to turn there. He speaks of the first uh, miracle at Cana of Galilee. And even people who aren't Christians know Jesus turned water into wine. That's what happened over there. But what's interesting there is I want to focus on one verse. John 2, 5. This is a situation where they're at a wedding feast and they run out of wine. And everybody's looking around. They don't really know what to do. So uh, Mary brings it up. His mother brings it up to him that there's no more wine. And he basically tells her that his hour has not come yet. But Mary turns to the servants and says to them, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, in the age of today where people are looking for all kinds of spiritual things, they're looking for signs and wonders, um, I see, you see a lot of people going wherever there's some type of spectacular thing because people are so void of spirituality, they'll pretty much go anywhere to find it. Uh, just think of some of those Mary apparitions with uh, maybe the paintings. You know, there's a painting of Mary and people say, well, there's tears coming out of the eyes. Or there's a statue and blood is coming out of it or it blinks or something like that. It's kind of, uh, kind of bizarre, actually. Uh, and the message that comes to the people from these so-called apparitions are usually contrary to scriptural. They go against what God's word has already established. If people want to know what Mary had to really say, all they have to do is look in the Bible. She says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. And that's what she's telling us today. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Follow Jesus. Follow the word of God. Uh, Officer, uh, one of the officers that I work with, kind of, he doesn't really talk much. He's got some furrowed eyebrows. He always looks like he's mad. He's a supervisor now. So we, uh, we ha- we're doing briefing, and we go out to our patrol cars to put the equipment in. And he says, Joe, come here for a minute. I'm thinking, I must be in trouble. What did I do? So as I'm walking toward him, I'm trying to figure out what I did wrong. But when I realized he just wanted to talk to me about, supposedly last year there was a so-called apparition in North Jersey, and he was asking me about it. And first of all, I felt relieved that I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> but then I started explaining to him, hey, bro, this is what the Bible says. And he's like, oh, good, thank you. And uh, he didn't go. I really think that he was kind of seeing if he should go or not. So I just kind of directed him to the word of God. Uh, in John 2, 13 through 22, it's the first cleansing of the temple. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple the first time, drives out the animals and the money changers. And then John 2, 23 through 25, he's received at Jerusalem. Uh, people believe in his name because of the signs that he did. And then John 3, 1 through 21, Jesus teaches about what it means to be born again. Now, as we go through the scripture, people are going to come up and receive the Lord. They're going to give their hearts to God. They're going to repent of their sins. And they're going to start their journey with God. But it's kind of neat because the same questions come up from new believers. And it's kind of cool to listen to. Uh, Somebody came up to me recently and said, Joe, are we born again Christians? So I had to explain to him what it meant to be born again. Let me just read you a few verses, uh, verses, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says this, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to be born again, unfortunately today that, that word has been butchered by the secular world and Christians themselves. People claiming to be born again have gotten caught up in all kinds of things. Obviously not walking the walk. Uh, also the world. They make you think that if you say you're born again that you're weird or something. You're in some type of a cult. But Jesus says, look, if you call yourself a Christian, you need to be born again. You need to be born again of the Spirit of God. And when he talks about the wind and likens the Holy Spirit to the wind, when you go outside and it's a windy day, you see the effects of the wind. The trees rustle. The branches sway. Your garbage can blows out into the street. But it's kind of like the Holy Spirit. You know, you don't see the wind, but you see the effects of it. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you the exact moment that the Holy Spirit filled my life? No. I know that I walked up and I made a profession of faith, but only God knows that time. When you, when you want to receive the Lord and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he knows. Oh, but we don't. So that's what it means to be born again. So you don't have to feel weird about saying that you're a born-again Christian. And John 46 through 54, this is a healing uh, of, the, of the nobleman's son. Jesus is having a discussion with a nobleman in the area of Cana again. And the nobleman's son is to the point of death. He's sick, he's going to die, and he's in Capernaum, 15 miles away. So Jesus, with his word, speaking to the man, uh, heals the son who's in a remote location. So to me, um, I, I say that Jesus is the... Re the inventor of the remote control, because he kind of healed by remote control. Verse, verse 14. Let's go into the text. It says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding regions. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The Greek word for power is dunamis, which might sound familiar to you. In the English, we get the word dynamite, dynamo, and dynamic from that word. And the question begs, do you have power in your life? As a Christian, do you have power in your life? And then if not, why not? If you're not a Christian, the only real way to have power in this world is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is to become a believer. Now, that doesn't mean power so that you could do what you want to do. See, if that's your motive, then, then you might, people could have all kinds of effects on the world now. But unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you're filled with God's power, you can't make an, a real effect for the kingdom of heaven without that. And if you are a Christian, some people as Christians just kind of, they're just okay with being saved, and that's about where it ends. They're just happy to go to heaven, and they don't realize the true potential that God has for them. They're content with leading a mediocre life, which is actually very tragic. I want to read a quote to you by Dallas Willard, Ph.D., professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He said, 
Quote, God lets himself be known, for example, in the story and person of Jesus. He is available to those who really want him. When you search for me, the old prophet said, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29:13. But he will not force himself upon you, not jump down your throat. And if you in your heart really want to be God yourself, you probably will not find him. You will find yourself. And that's true with Christians in a sense where if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, the only thing barring us as Christians to really be filled with the Holy Spirit is ourselves. And sometimes we block ourselves by our actions and by our attitude. Verse 16. He says, Then he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, I don't think that, I think everything in the scripture has, there's meaning to it. I think there's just, the whole scripture is chock full of meaning. For 2,000 years, men have been studying the Bible, and even today, people are coming up with something new that no one's come up with before. But Jesus was born with Bethlehem. Uh, he was born at Bethlehem. Jesus is the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, and the name Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. Very fitting. Uh, Jesus was brought up in Nazareth. The root word for Nazareth in the Hebrew is netzer, which means branch. Uh, he was the branch, the branch of righteousness, according to Jeremiah 23.5, and Isaiah 11.11 also calls him the branch. Very fitting names for where he was born and, and grew up. Nazareth was located midway between the, the Mediterranean Sea and the southern part of the Sea of Galilee. And then the synagogue. The synagogue is a transliterated word from the Greek. Sometimes I'm going to say that, transliterated. And all that means is you have a, a word in one language, when translated to another language, it pretty much remains intact. Like we talked about baptism, comes from the word baptisma. Same word, just kind of taken and put it into the English. And the word synagogue in the Greek means to do together. Now, synagogue sprang up after the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It was completely destroyed, and they had no place to worship. So what happened was these little buildings would spring up in local areas and people, communities would go to these buildings, these, these synagogues. And these were a place for worship and for prayer. So they sprang up and even after the temple was rebuilt, the synagogue still remained intact. But the itinerary for the synagogue was this. Prayer, recitation of Deuteronomy 6, readings from the law, readings from the prophets, uh, a sermon by a visiting rabbi, and a blessing or a commentary. Now, we see, obviously, Jesus here as a visiting rabbi or coming back to his hometown is giving the honor of teaching. And in Acts 13, Paul would travel. As, you know, Paul went from place to place, and he would visit local synagogues, and he would teach. So he had took advantage of this custom, too. 17. And he said he was, I'm sorry, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, book, we look at a book, we kind of pick it up. And uh, it's kind of neat. There's 66 books here. And every time you turn the page to another chapter, you're going back in time or you're going forward in time. You could have been going to a different language, a different culture, a different person. So we have the luxury of having a bound book where we can flip back and forth. Their books, in a sense, were basically uh, long pieces of like an ancient paper called papyrus. And they were bonded together up to 35 feet long. And then there would be a rod or a stick on each side and then they would roll it up. And basically, they would move it around to see which part of the scripture that they would look in. So it's just a little custom uh, there for you. In verse 18, now he's reading from the uh, prophet Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus is reading a snapshot out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, which the ancient rabbis agreed was a messianic prophecy. So let's take apart verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right there you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay? So you have the Trinity spelled out right there. And then uh, it says anointing. What is anointing? Anointing in the Bible has several meanings, many of them closely uh, related. But in this passage it means to be set apart for a particular work or service. In this case, the Messiah basically gets a send-off to do God's will. He's being anointed. He's starting his ministry. Uh, And then you have five groups of people here who it mentions. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Now, the poor. Let's start with the poor. God always said in his word, starting with the Old Testament, that the poor needed to be taken care of. But unfortunately, the people neglected the poor. And then when Jesus came, he he showed people again how the poor should be taken care of. You know, Jesus makes a statement um, in in one of the the stories where the the woman breaks the alabaster flask of of that expensive perfume and anoints Jesus prior to his burial, to his death. And Judas is complaining. He said, that's very expensive. You know, what a waste. It could have been sold and given to the poor. Now, we find out later that Judas was taken from the kitty. He was kind of stealing the money. So, of course, he wanted that money to be sold so he could get some. But Jesus said to him, the poor you will have with you always. Now, that initially seems like a little bit of a callous statement. But it's only through, through knowing and understanding God's word and the heart of Christ that you would know, no, it's not a callous statement. What I believe is that the poor we will have with us always for two reasons. Number one, it tests our obedience. Set forth initially in the law, God said to take care of your fellow man. Don't, you know, he didn't really want a, a class system where people were always poor. So, number one, if people, poor people were still around, that would be a disobedience issue to God's people. And the second thing is, I think today the poor is a test of, of the church at large. Churches are so focused on uh, so many things, and sometimes the poor kind of get neglected in the interim. As a church, we support the poor. We'll, we'll do things in our budget to help poor people. But also, as the ecclesia, the church, those called out to be here sitting in these seats, it's a test for us as Christians individually. What do we think of the poor? Is there anything left in our budget to the poor? Are we generous with people? You know, I've been moved, not, not often, but I've been moved, and I felt like the Holy Spirit talking to me and telling me to help somebody that I meet, you know, maybe on the street or whatever. And uh, look, if I if I give the guy money or something, I don't ask for a receipt for my taxes. You know, if God moves you to do something, you do it. it. We can't. I mean, it's good to have write-offs because the government should. You know, they're overbearing as it is. But <laughs> but the point is that we don't always give so that we could get something back. We give because it's it's in the heart of God and as a Christian to give. We're supposed to be generous. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed is the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go back and forth now between what you would say, poor, that's easy, somebody who doesn't have enough to eat, somebody who doesn't have a home. I I understand that. But now we have to go back and forth. Jesus took care of the poor physically, but he also took care of the poor spiritually. And there's there's always going to be two applications. Um, If that's you today, if you're poor in spirit, if you've been humbled by life, God wants to offer you the keys to heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. 
and the brokenhearted. Plenty of brokenhearted in our society. People have been victimized since the beginning of mankind by murder, rape, scams, natural disasters, diseases, you name it. There's just always something to victimize people, and they become the brokenhearted. Um, but, you know, we've also spoken before of what suffering can accomplish. I want to read another quote by Malcolm Muggeridge. He used to be, an, he was a very high-profile agnostic for most of his life until he converted to Christianity. And the fun thing, funny things to play with words, you know what the word agnostic means? Well, in the Greek, people make fun of me, I always say, in the Greek, agnostic, ah, in the Greek means without, okay? And gnosis in the Greek means knowledge. So somebody who tells you that they're agnostic, you say, hmm, you're a dummy then, right? <laughs> That's not a really good witnessing uh, tool, but. So Malcolm Muggeridge said this, supposing you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Did you ever look at suffering like that? It's a pretty interesting perspective. Psalm 51:17 says, it tells us the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's only, when, it's only through brokenness, when we're broken, can we experience true healing. I mean, that's kind of logical, too. What do you need to be healed for if you're not broken? Unless you break a bone, your bones don't need to be healed. So only through spiritual brokenness can we experience true healing. Um, we're stubborn creatures. I, I agree with Malcolm there. Uh, we're prideful creatures. And sometimes it's only through suffering that we come to the feet of the God of all creation. Uh, we usually come to God as a last-ditch effort after we've tried everything else. And he never gets offended. You know, it's, God never gets offended when we do that, and he always welcomes us with, with open arms. But if that's you today, if you are brokenhearted, the Lord has healing for you. But it's through his son, Jesus Christ. And the captives, the prophet Isaiah. Now remember, the prophet Isaiah spoke this prophecy uh, several hundred years prior to Christ. So Isaiah basically is prophesying during the time of the Babylonian invasion and captivity. Something as, Amer as Americans we have a hard time with because we've been really fortunate in this country. Uh, but you have to imagine what these people went through. A, a foreign army comes and they invade and they burn villages and they take captives and they take slaves and they expatriate you from your home to another foreign land and they introduce their gods. And, you know, they do all these things. They torture people. So this, this is a very serious thing to these people. And, and a captive, uh, to, to free the captives, if they would read that, they would be like, oh, I can't wait to be freed. But the captives. Um, but to focus on physical captivity is to be myopic. It's important to see that the Messiah came to also free us from the captivity of our sin. It's good to be free. We live in a free nation. We always boast about that as Americans. That's a good thing. But it's also even better to be freed from our sin. That's what Jesus came to do. Because unaddressed, left unaddressed, our sin will send us to hell. That's just a fact. It's not a popular subject, but it's the truth. So, I mean, I've seen a lot of people who won't come to God because they, sin, they think their sins are unpardonable. And that's not true. Remember, Moses killed a man and fled from justice. Paul, the apostle who was prior Saul would give consent and help to people who would capture Christians and bind them and bring them back. And his consent went to many Christians who were killed. And the Lord turned him around 
and he became the writer of half the New Testament. The Lord can turn people around. So um, I got to say, if there's any of you here today who are struggling with any issues, you know, I, I look at people's eyes and, you know, Jesus said that the, the eye is the lamp of the body. Behind everybody's eyes, there's something. Everybody has a story. And some of us are carrying around guilt and things that we've done. And we just feel that we can't be saved. It's just not for me. The Lord, and I've heard that a lot of times. And it's usually only till you talk to somebody one-on-one do you, do you get that to come out of them. But whatever you've done in your life, it doesn't matter. I mean, what sin that, that, that God overlooked and went, oh, I've never seen that sin before. We can't forgive this guy. I mean, come on. There's nothing new under the sun. So if that's you today, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of the service to receive Jesus. And the blind, yes, Jesus physically opened the eyes of the blind. At the end of John's Gospel, he says, Jesus did so many things that I suppose all the books of the world couldn't contain all the, all the, all the miracles and the wonders that Jesus did. We're getting snapshots in these Gospels of what Jesus did. But he could have healed thousands and tens of thousands of blind people. He's healing them in, perfect, in, 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 um, in front of them and also, again, by remote control. He healed many people by a word, and somebody in, uh, in a remote area would get healed from his word. So we don't know how many... Uh, Blind people actually receive sight physically, but also Jesus opened the eyes of the spiritually blind. It's only when your eyes are open spiritually can you discern right from wrong. If you're not, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, if you don't have God living in you, your right and wrong is, you know, it's okay for me, but it's not okay for you and vice versa. It's all relative because it's all what we believe. But really, it's not all what we believe. It's what God believes. And that's the most important thing. I remember... um, For years, I was pro-choice. I was pro-abortion. And even as a Christian, it took me a while to kind of lose that mentality. But I would say, yeah, woman's right to choose. It wasn't for a woman's right to choose. It was for my own selfishness. In case I got somebody pregnant, I had a way out. So my own views on abortion were self-serving. I mean, I wouldn't say that back then, but looking back, I was an idiot. I could say that now, you know. When you look back at your life and you realize the things that you did and the things that you believed, you just kind of shake your head sometimes and say, thank God I'm saved. But the oppressed, who are the oppressed? I'm sure most of you have heard about the caste system in India. It's very, you know, now that we have the age of the Internet and satellites, you know, nobody's real, no country's far away anymore. We know people's cultures and language and so forth. But the caste, in the, uh, caste system in India is where people fit into different socioeconomic levels. And if you're born a Dalit, D-A-L-I-T, you're basically at the bottom of the food chain. You get the worst jobs. You can't get out of that, that, that section that you're in. Um, there's nothing you can do, and you're treated poorly. But many Dalits, by the hundreds, the thousands, the ten thousands, are becoming Christians. They're becoming freed. A hopeless life of being a Dalit. I'm just, you know, I, I have to do the menial jobs. They're, they're coming to Christ, and that oppression is being lifted from them. They're joyous. And other people who are higher look at them and like, what's your problem? You're a Dalit. They're like, I have Jesus Christ, I'm going to heaven. So the oppressed, you know, Jesus came to free the oppressed. Um, The group mentioned in verse 18 can be, you know, it's basically how how, how society looks at people, in a sense. Uh, A lot of times we look at these people and society overlooks them. But see, they can be easier to reach because a lot of times, you know, people say, I've heard people say to me, all right, so they try to analyze me and they go, so... What made you so religious? What traumatic thing happened in your life? I feel like I'm on the, the shrink's chair or something, you know? It's like, you know, I just love God. You know, I, everybody has a hobby. 
what I believe in and, and my interests are eternal. Yours are, are temporal. But people in this, in this class, in verse 18, they're at the end of their rope. They have no allies in the world. And they're a lot easier to reach, whereas conversely, people with great physical and temporal attributes are a lot of times a lot harder to reach because they erroneously believe they're self-sustaining and they, they trade eternal bliss for this life. That doesn't mean those people can't be saved. Um, as a matter of fact, there's many successful people, uh, you know, people who don't fit into this, this uh, category who are saved. But did you know that if, you, if that's you, if you've traded eternal bliss for this here and now, do you realize that you have a criminal mind? Oh, I'll explain it. Criminals trade um, basically a good portion of their life, their, their freedom, their, their, their later years, you know, un, 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 unspecified amount of time for the here and now. By living a life of burglarizing, bank robbery, scams, stick-ups for quick money, they know eventually, eventually they're going to get caught by the long arm of the law but, and spend the most of their life on death row or uh, in jail. But again, they trade the end of their life, they trade uh, the unforeseeable future for the here and now. That's what a criminal does. So don't be a criminal, come to Jesus. I bet you've never heard that uh, Christian slogan before. <laughs> Verse 19, it says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What is the acceptable year of the Lord? Second Corinthians 6, 2 says this. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you in the day of salvation. I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So here, Paul is quoting Isaiah 49, 8 when he says that. The acceptable year of the Lord. It's the ushering in of the gospel dispensation, the age of grace, the acceptable time, the fullness of time to reconcile God and man. It's here. It's now. You know, the kingdom of heaven is, 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 is waiting for you. Um, some liken the Messiah's mission to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 25, I won't read it, but basically every 50th year, again, this was part of the law, what would happen is the land rested from being worked and the people rested from working the land. The slaves were freed, debts were forgiven, and if your land was lost because of debt, through a family debt, that land would be returned back to the original family. So it was like God set the reset button. In a spiritual sense, the indebted, the captive, the blind, the poor are given rest and freedom by Christ. When we see Jesus as Lord and Savior, we live, um, we live a Christian life, we live an overwhelming life. And we, we kind of get a new lease on life. Everything we've done in the past, the Lord kind of forgets. He says, I, I, for, I forgive your sins. I forget them as far as the east is from the west. And in trials, we even become different people. I was uh, apologizing to my wife recently because I have this, this constant pains in, my, pains in my neck, but not a person. A literal pain in my neck. And uh, it, I just can't get rid of them. And sometimes it just affects my shoulders and it gives me headaches and I get cranky. And I said to my wife, you know, I'm sorry for being cranky. And she said, yeah, that's nothing. She goes, you were so different before you were Christian. You had a lot less problems and you were unbearable. <laughs> and you never know when you talk to your spouse where the conversation's going to go. And she said, you know, you were, you were just kind of cranky and you didn't even know how to have fun. So my logical question was, what did you stay with me for? But anyway, even as a Christian, you don't realize it, but other people see it in you. Even in hard times, you, you have joy. And even when you think that you're this or that, people look at you and say, wow, you've changed. That's great. So, so the Lord does great things in your life. Uh, verse 20. It says, then he closed the book 
and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So why did, I, uh, why did Jesus stop reading in the middle of what Isaiah was saying between verse 1 and verse 2? Uh, the answer is that that actual comma, let me go back to Isaiah 61. That actual comma, it says, the last thing he said, an opening of the prison uh, to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus stopped. The next verse is, and the day of vengeance of our God. He kind of stops midstream, mid-thought. But do you realize that comma separates 2,000 years? It's pretty amazing. Um, the comma separates the age of grace from the age of vengeance. The comma separates Jesus as the lamb from Jesus coming back as the lion. That's what that comma represents. The latter half of Isaiah 61 to the day of vengeance is the second coming of Christ to judgment. Uh, it's not a popular theme today, and a lot of places won't teach that because you know, it doesn't make people feel all happy and squishy inside. But the Bible says that there's going to come a point in time that when Jesus comes in judgment, uh, people will be so rebellious. We are stubborn creatures as humans, aren't we? Well, come on, think about the last argument that you had with your spouse. We're stubborn creatures. But it's going to be so bad that people are going to beg the, the rocks and the mountains to fall down on us, to, not us, of people who are rebellious, to crush them rather than face the Lord. Rather than get down on your knees, humble yourself and say, I repent, Lord, I come to you, you are the king. Rather than do that, people would rather be squashed by rocks and mountains, landslide, thinking that they're going to get away from his, his wrath. So that, that's what that represents. But that doesn't have to be you. If you are here today, there is going to be a, a, come a point in time where the Lord is going to come back for his people, and he's going to take us you know, to heaven with him. Uh, and and it, it's kind of like it's going to be, you'll be stuck here, and the tribulation will come. And we're going to go into that at the end of Luke with the tribulation and the Antichrist and all that stuff, you don't want to be here for that. You really don't want to be here for that. You want to be here when the Lord comes back and comes as a shout from heaven, the trumpet, the voice of an archangel, and we all rise up to meet him in the clouds of the air and be done with this. Uh, so it doesn't have to be you. Today we're going to give you that opportunity to come to him. And from our perspective, the Old Testament prophets were kind of all over the map when it came to uh, time periods. Sometimes my teachings are all over the map, so bear with me. But in one verse, uh, they speak God's word in the here and now, the prophets. They speak about what's happening right now. That's called forth-telling prophecy, speaking forth God's word. In another verse, the prophets will speak God's word in the distant future. That's called foretelling prophecy. They'll speak something in the distant future. So there's two types of prophecy. As humans, we're very comfortable with chronological order because that's the way God kind of made us. Something that happens earlier today, it, we can never go back to that time. We're always marching forward in time. So we like chronological order, but the prophets kind of move things around, and sometimes they're talking about the future, sometimes they're talking about the present. But, it all, again, you have to look at it from God's perspective. We, it's, somebody did a really good example about how somebody looks at a parade. Way, the way we look at a parade is kind of like on the curb. Our perspective is we see the front of the parade, then we see the middle of the parade, and then we see the end of the parade. That's how we see time, snapshot, frame by frame by frame. The way God sees the parade is from an aerial view, looking down. He can see the front of the parade, the middle of the parade, and the rear of the parade all at the same time. But we don't have that perspective. That's not how we were designed. So when you look at the prophets, you have to see that. And, and that kind of helps make the, it more digestible, more understandable. And then Jesus, he, uh, the custom in those days was to sit down when they taught. 
My feet are always hurting me, so I may adopt that. I don't know. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's no question what Jesus was saying. I am the Messiah. It's being fulfilled in your hearing. What I'm speaking forth, that's me. I'm the Messiah. So he's kind of announcing it. Uh, Verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? They marveled, they marveled at the, uh, the gracious words they came out of his mouth. Whatever he said, I don't know if everything he said is recorded here, but it, you would kind of get from the text that maybe he did some teachings and it's not particularly recorded, but whatever he said to them blew them away. They marveled at what he said. Uh, is this not Joseph's son? You know, he, wait a minute, scratching their heads. This is Jesus, that, that guy, Joseph, you know, he's a poor guy, him and Mary, um, lived down the street there. When did Jesus ever go to Bible college? How, how, how did he get this knowledge? And, you know, that's the way they were looking at him. Um, and I don't know what it's like in that society back then, but in our society, we kind of worship education. And I've said that before. I mean, I got a four-year degree from a good college, but I got to tell you, none of my wisdom came from college. My wisdom came after I became a Christian and understanding what this book says about life and what, about God and relationships. Uh, so my wisdom didn't come from my schooling. Even in the pastorate, I would judge uh, who's a good pastor by his love for God, his love for God's word, and his application in his life and the life of the people who go to his church. Not how many letters come after his last name or not how many thousands of people go to his church on a Sunday. That's not important. His love for God, his love for God's word and knowledge of God's word and the application that he makes thereof. 23. And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. A proverb, an adage or a maxim, not necessarily a proverb of Solomon. But this proverb was used against Jesus while he was on the cross. Remember, fast forward to the crucifixion. They hurled insults at him and they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. Physician, heal thyself. But for here and now, they basically were like, look, you, we, saw, we heard what you did in Capernaum. Come on, do something here. Show us. Show us what you got. Prove yourself. But Jesus never operated like that. He didn't do miracles on command. He did them out of love. And he didn't do them for himself. He did them for other people. Verse 24. Then he said, Surely I will say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. It happened to the prophets prior to Jesus. They weren't accepted. It happened to Jesus. He was crucified. And it happens to us. Not that we're prophets in the Old Testament sense, but we get saved, we learn about God, and then we get excited to tell our family and our friends and our coworkers. I got to tell you, I was so excited to tell my coworkers, the guys on the police department, that they were ready to send me for an evaluation. <laughs> but, you know, that didn't happen. The Lord was good to me. But the expression is kind of true. Familiarity breeds contempt. People were so familiar with Jesus that they just couldn't accept what he was saying. Um, People will come to you, or people will listen to anyone else about spiritual things but you. If you find that you get saved, you become a new Christian, you want to tell people, they'll listen to anyone else, you know, people saying kooky stuff, but they won't listen to you because they know you. I grew up with you. What are you talking about? How do you get so religious? And then they want to see if you're going to stick with it, right? i got to tell you, nobody in my family got saved through me, but then again, I nagged them incessantly, and they didn't want to hear me anymore. Verse 25 and 6. It says, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, 
and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath and the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So this story is found in 1 Kings 17. If you want to go back at some point and uh, refresh yourself with it. But basically, God sends the prophet Elijah during this horrible famine in the land. He sends him to a Gentile land of the people who were called the, the Phoenicians. Um, he meets with a woman who was a widow preparing her last meal. She said she was preparing her last meal and she was getting ready to die. She had a last bit of food. She was going to make it, feed herself and her son, and then she was going to die because they were going to starve to death. But out of faith, uh, she, Elijah asks for something to eat, and she shares that last meal with him. And then Elijah does this great miracle where he makes it so that the oil and the flour that she has never run out. So she's always got food now, no matter what. She doesn't have to go to the grocery store anymore. Uh, but this Gentile woman's faith is what blessed her. Uh, blessed, she got blessed miraculously with sustenance because of this Gentile woman's faith. And then the other story that he relates is found in 2 Kings uh, 5. And this, it goes like this. He, he speaks about it a little bit. He says, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, ex- cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, Naaman was a commander in the Syrian army. He was a general, and he was a, a man of great statue, stature. And the Syrians were known for their brutality. They would come, they would raid, they were raiders, they were brutal, and that's what they were known for. In one of their raids, uh, Naaman captured a young Jewish girl and brought her back to his country. And he made her basically a servant for his wife. She became Naaman's wife's servant. Now, Naaman had leprosy. Not really sure when he got the leprosy, but the captured girl uh, wanted Naaman to be healed. Now, I kind of look at that and I say, Naaman, you know, I'm sure that the Jewish people hated him, but there must have been something redeeming about this guy. Because the girl, she's a slave girl, she's taken from her family, is forced to be a slave in this, this man's house. And um, she, she begged pretty much him to go to Israel to be healed by the prophet in Israel. So he goes, and he has to go before Elisha. And he has to humble himself. Everything that he has to do is humiliating to this man. He's a man of great stature. And it was a test to see his humility. He humbled himself, and he eventually got healed of the leprosy. So he reads, Jesus reads these two stories, and they become filled with wrath. Well, what happened? Well, now they're, they're angry. They're filled with wrath, not just anger. A few verses ago, weren't they marveling at his gracious words? What happened in the span of a half an hour or 45 minutes? Um, It goes to show you that people are fickle. People are fickle. Human beings are fickle. They just flipped the switch on them. They went from, oh, Jesus, wow. Oh, tell me more. To, we hate you, you know, get out of here. And they actually chase them to the edge of the cliff to throw them off. So they just flipped the switch on them. And that kind of goes to show us why we have to focus on God and not people. You know, who here hasn't, even think back to grade school, who here hasn't had a best friend, you're my best friend, pinky swear, all that kind of stuff, right? Who hasn't had a best friend turn on them? How many people have had several best friends turn on you through your life? And that can be very painful. That really hurts, cuts to the heart. But people are fickle. The only one who has your back is God. That's, that's something you have to realize. That's why as Christians we can't, we can't try to be all, you know, capitulating to the world when it comes to our faith. We've got to be strong in our faith because you want to be friends with the world? The world will turn on you. The Bible says that there's a point in time, we see the stuff in the Middle East, that they're going to, people are going to say, peace, safety. Now, no doubt, that has to do with the events in the Middle East. Who could ever think that there would be peace in the Middle East? But they're going to tout peace, safety, and it's going to be a false peace. 
Okay? And it's going to be, when, when the false peace turns around, it's going to be brutal. It's going to be a brutal time. So the only peace that you can have with, is with God. And the Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God. Now, that doesn't mean that we shun people. I've also seen Christians take the other extreme where, you know, everything's, you know, Christian studies, Christian friends, Christian church, Christian this, Christian that, Christian stores, and they don't ever meet people who aren't saved. Well, that is totally against Scripture. We're supposed to be salt and light. You're not, what are you, preserving your friend? They're already saved, right? So you, you kind of have to go outside the box to love people. But see, and you say, well, Joe, that sounds like a contradiction. No, it's not. There's a difference between the world system and one person at a time. Remember, Jesus didn't come to overthrow the government. He came to have an effect on individuals, individuals, individuals. And you see, his best work was done with individuals. Sure, he preached to the masses. He healed people. But Jesus was a discipler. He dealt with people individually. And that's what we have to see. So why were the people so angry with Jesus? Well, maybe it's because Jesus suggested that God loves outsiders just as much as he loved the Jews. And that was an affront to them. Now, outsiders, people who are different. I was watching um, a documentary on the Ku Klux Klan a few months ago. And it's amazing. These people have the audacity to believe that they're Christian. It's kind of frightening. They actually call a lot of these new groups, these new uh, racist groups, Christian identity groups, because they identify with God and they'll tell you how they're doing the Lord's will. That's insanity. It's like people who are, what are they, not humans? Uh, you know, looking at people from the outside. So that's actually very disturbing. And sometimes people can have a haughty attitude. And that's an extreme. But for us, you know, as Christians, sometimes we look at people, you know, outside and we, oh, well, we're, we're saved. But that shouldn't be our attitude. We have to be salt and light to people. And Jesus broke down those outsider barrier, barriers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He showed that two prominent people, a priest and a Levite, walked past the man who was pretty much beaten up and left for dead, and they just kind of looked the other way. I don't want to get involved. And a Samaritan who people despised as the lowest of the low, he came and he put the guy and put him on his donkey, took him to the inn, dressed his wounds, and paid for the man to stay there. And what did Jesus show by that? He broke down those barriers. There is no us in them. You know, we're to love everyone. Um, and, and you have to give yourself a heart check. Those of us who, um, who you know, have a regular job and uh, maybe a situation where there's a janitorial staff, this is a hard check. Do we walk past the janitors like they're second-class citizens, like they don't exist? Are they just the janitors? Do you smile? Do you say hello? The busboy who comes to clean off your table, do you just kind of keep talking like that person doesn't exist? Like, get away from me, you're like a fly. Um, you know, we, we have to look at that. I mean, we talk about the, I talked about the caste system in India, but a lot of times... Um, as Americans, we can have uh, the opinion or the idea or the mindset that people are lower than others. Oh, they're just a factory worker. Oh, oh, they just they're just serving my, me my happy meal. And I've seen people, you know, I've seen people how they treat drive up people and you know people who you would look down on because you got a good job. And that shouldn't be. That's not fitting for God's people. It shouldn't be like that. People are people. As a matter of fact, the, the janitorial staff. Uh, it's so tough because they mostly speak Spanish, and I'm trying. I speak Spanglish. <laughs> but they'll take tracts from me because I open the door for them. I try to talk to them. Um, I treat them as if they were my brother. So that opens the door for me to you know, give the tracts and give the gospel to these people, Spanish Bibles, what have you. Uh, so anyway, maybe these people were filled with wrath for Jesus because he suggested that their religion wasn't an automatic status into the kingdom. Some people think that, well, I belong to a major denomination, or even people in Calvary. Sometimes people 
At Calvary, we think we've got the market cornered on truth. There's no other churches out there that have the truth except for Calvary Chapel. That's not true. It's ridiculous. Um, it's not like a gym membership card. You know, Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through the organization that I made up, not through whatever, it's except through Jesus. I kind of try to teach my son that scripture, John 14:6, and kids kind of don't always say it the way you want it to say it. My son kind of says it, but he puts like a little bit of an Italian twist on it. He, I guess it's the Italian in him. He, my, my son says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one touches the Father but me. <laughs> I'm working on him. <laughs> Verse 29. And they were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust them out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And as a young Christian, I got caught up in that. I would get frustrated in talking to people, and I'd say, let me tell you about Jesus. He's all about love. And then we'd start talking, and I'd get angry. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. And I'm thinking, I just was talking about love, now I'm telling the person to shut up. So... <laughs> James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're starting to feel that inside of you, save it for another time. And verse 30, they were going to throw him off the cliff, but he, he passed away in the midst of them. It wasn't his appointed time to die, not that time and not that way. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again, and no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Jesus was rejected at Nazareth. Jesus was rejected by men so that you could be accepted by God. Acceptance by God is far more important than the accolades from men. Like I said, the world is fickle. One will usher you into the kingdom of heaven, and the other won't. 